Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from Training Industry. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Learning. I'm Taryn H. DeLong, Managing Editor of Digital Content at Training Industry. And I'm Sarah Gallo, an Associate Editor. Thanks for joining us today. This episode of the Business of Learning is sponsored by GP Strategies. GP Strategies enables people and organizations to perform at their highest potential, creating a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. Subscribe to the GP Strategies podcast, Performance Matters, where they interview industry experts and explore best practices and share innovative insights on topics like the one we'll discuss today. Design thinking is all the rage in the training industry lately, and it helps demonstrate that design as a mindset goes beyond creating content. It's a way of thinking that training managers can use to improve their learning solutions and make an impact. To explore this idea further, we're talking today with Danny Seals, Director of Design and Experience at GP Strategies. Danny, thanks for joining us on the Business of Learning. Hey, Taryn. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, let's dive right in. First of all, Danny, why is it important for training managers to have an understanding of design principles? It's a great question. The best way I can kind of break this down, I guess, is ultimately when we design and when we when we look at things in life, we have principles, whether that be our own internal principles. And ultimately, design isn't different. You know, if we have a good design flow and a good kind of rigor and, and foundation of what these are, we can always not guarantee it, but we know that we're all staying true to ourselves and how we design and how we look at problems. So whether that be looking at actually, you know, rather than making a gut feeling, we, we make a data-informed decision, whether we, we look at the experience. And actually, sometimes it's about just looking at, actually, we people always want innovation. And sometimes innovation is just being really, you know, stripping it right back and looking at, at things in a more simple, through a simple lens. So having having these good principles to kind of stick to and stay true to helps us design folk be consistent, I guess, with how we look at problems. Danny, uh, you write a lot, um, especially on your LinkedIn page, about transformational performance design. Can you tell us a little bit about what that term means? Uh, what, what do you mean when you talk about it? Yeah, sure. So, so transformational performance design, it's, it's, it's a human-centered approach. So it, it brings into various different design understandings and different mindsets, I guess. So, you know, especially when we want to look at creating true sustainable change, whether that be from large organizational systems right through to individuals and behaviors. Ultimately, it's, it's a way of doing and it's a way of designing. So my team has a background in learning, ultimately. You know, we also bring with us experience and understanding from, from other areas, such as behavior science, research, innovation. We even have people in there from engineering. So kind of bringing these different mindsets and applying them to our design disciplines and looking at things such as design thinking and service design and experience design and applying all them to solve a big business problem is what transformational performance design is really. I mean, this can range from projects ranging from, you know, big, large, large challenges such as organizational culture, employee experience, right through to kind of onboarding, coaching or creating thriving communities in the workplace. So we're more focused, I guess, more on this workforce transformation than others, I guess, and and we look at we look at it from a very different level. Sometimes people want to be able to have a more efficient, more lean approach, especially if you're coming from a background where many many years ago where you got forced into doing learning 
and actually we're moving more into this kind of in the flow of work learning. So sometimes it goes more down this performance support approach and often organizations want kind of an understanding of actually how can we create true behavioral change and that's where we'd pull on something like experience design to give them an experience what allows this, this change to start happening and starting to thrive. So ultimately it pulls from various different designs and what it means is we start looking at business problems not as a learning problem but as a workforce problem and then kind of reverse engineering backwards I guess. Very cool. And could you give us an example of a time when you've actually used transformational performance design in your role to address a specific need? What did that process look like? Yeah, sure. So the client, I won't be able to say due to NDA. However, I will be able to tell you who it is. So it's a big insurance company. And they came to us and they wanted to know, actually, they have this program that was in place. And throughout the program, they take on 20 people. Um, a year, and, then, and don't get me wrong, the program what they had in place was good. They shipped people off to San Francisco for two weeks, they brought them back, they sh then shipped them over to, I think it was Copenhagen for two weeks. So all in all, it was a great program, and it had you know, the benefit of having a couple of holidays in there as well. Mm -hmm. um, but what what the, the business really wanted was to have a more inclusive program rather than this really exclusive approach. And obviously, they wouldn't be able to scale that, given the fact that it was around about, I think it was £2 million a year, they were was, they was sending these 20 people off. So they came to us and they said, you know, how, how, can, we, how can we change this? How can we, how can we create this program, which is really good, create everything what was great about it from an experience point of view, and actually, how can we scale it so that it becomes more inclusive? So the first thing we did is we kind of got under the hood we had to look at research. So this is where it comes into one of our principles about being data informed. So the business, some, often you'll see the client or the business will come to you with a, with a problem. But usually it's a, just a perceived problem. You know, often you, when you start digging in, you can start to get to the root of what actually what is the real problem. So the first thing we did was we did lots of research, lots of ethnography, kind of looking at journaling, and we did audience insight, we did lots of surveys. We did lots and lots of kind of quantitative and qualitative data to kind of capture that. So what we found out actually was they loved this experience, but when you stripped it right back, actually what we enjoyed was the opportunity to be away with, with some of the work colleagues, be away with them to kind of, you know, be away for two weeks in San Francisco or Copenhagen. And actually what mm. they really, really loved about it was the network. You know, when you when you dug in, the stuff what they learned over that program, they never really applied. It was never really aligned to the business. It never really it never really pulled out some of the business challenges and kind of brought them to life. So it actually when we looked at it, it was less about a learning problem, more about a work problem and a workforce transformation piece. So we did lots of research as as I mentioned earlier, and then we started work code delivering and code code designing. We started to look at actually what does a current experience look like and what do we want the new experience to look like. Again, at this point, we're not looking at learning. We're looking at the wider macro experience of that program. So one of our key principles is, is co-development. Co you know, it, I can tell you, you know, what I think the problem is, but actually getting people who have been through that experience or getting people who, who haven't passed the experience to be part of one and lucky to enter to kind of share their experiences and start helping 
create this new this new solution was vital. So again, it's it's kind of always comes back down to that kind of code development, code design, and, and working with the insight what we've got. And if we haven't got that insight, we need to capture it. We need to get it. So it's about kind of bringing that to life. So once we did that, yeah. we then we went through an iterative approach, and we looked at actually, if you look at it from a real top level, you've got the experience, you've got the user journey, and the, the what the person goes through. But actually, we, we we went next level. We started using our design understanding and our experience, and started to shape what the backstage interactions were, and actually what needed to happen in order to make this program truly sustainable. You know, I've I've seen in the past with you know working at, at other other companies where they create this great solution, but unless it's micromanaged by every single individual, it falls over. So one of the things which we look at is actually how can this be held up by itself, how it needs less hands on it, and you know it kind of starts rolling itself and it kind of it's consistently churning over. So we do a lot a lot of kind of system thinking and service design to try and bring that to life. Ultimately, what, what, where we're at, we're at now, and again, COVID came along, so we had to adapt how we did this code development. So now we're using things such as Miro, and kind of shaping that and working code development on a whiteboard and stuff like that to really bring it to life. So we're in the first iteration now. We've got Insight rolling out at the moment, so come the end of September, we're going to get lots of Insight based on that first iteration. And then ultimately, we're going to go not back to the drawing board, but look at what the insights tell us about the people who have gone through that experience. And then again, we'll, we'll have an, an iterative approach on that. So there's lots and lots. It, it's, it's not necessarily a stop-start. It tends to be a, lots of mini-experiments, if you like, and lots of iterations built on insight and data and not just on assumption. So I think I may have gone around the houses to explain that to you, but hopefully that brings <laughs> to life a little bit. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down for us. Next off, why would you say it's important for learning leaders to ask the right questions when designing a new solution? How can they approach that question asking process? Oh, you know, good question. I think questions is a really interesting one for me. And the best way I, I try and sum this up is ultimately people who are doing design, they should be a collector of questions. And, and that should be everything what you've picked up. You know, sometimes I pick up questions what I've heard on TV shows and, and, and picked up things on what I've heard on the radio. And it's about creating this portfolio of questions to ask. So we should be collecting questions anyway. Now, that's not to say every question needs to be super complex. I always try to revert back to being simple. Again, going back to one of our design disciplines, um, principles, which is actually try to be simple. So what, when, where, who, how, where, they're, they're very basic questions what can really allow you to dig into what someone's feeling, what someone's thinking, and how they're getting through, how they're navigating their, their work life. You know, you've got other questions such as tell me, explain to me, demonstrate, which are all cool questions to ask and will all provide you insight. I think what we need to often be, be careful of is we don't shy away for really digging into a question as well. Because sometimes what you'll find is when doing your design research, often you'll get kind of this masking layer of an answer. And it's only once you say why a couple of times or why is that or when was that, you actually start to really pull out the root problem. Like, for example, if, if I was to ask 
us on this podcast now, actually tell me how you how you make toast. We will all say we make toast differently. And if I was to ask you to draw <laughs> me how you make toast, we will all draw it very differently. And that's because we see the world in our own our own way. And we look at simple things like processes of how to how to make toast. We'll all do it very differently. So ultimately we have to care about the people's problem in order for them to care about our solution in the end. That's a great point. I actually participated in an initiative a couple of years ago to basically create like a big map of systems and processes for helping people with disabilities get employment. And in that process, we used a lot of a lot of these principles that you're talking about. And one of the activities that we did was seemingly irrelevant to me, but it was to draw you know, something basic like like making toast. And it was amazing to see the different answers, the different ways that people drew that. So that's yeah. a great point. And, and I think that's, that's sometimes what we, we, we miss that with research, especially when we're doing qualitative and, and quantitative research. Often we, we always try to do the research on the general and we very rarely miss the extremes of that research. So going back to your example there, Taryn, like, you know, people have got learning difficulties. So for me, I have dyslexia and dyspraxia. So obviously how I see the world and how I navigate things such as reading and writing is very different to what the general population is. And often you can get a, a lot more insight from them, them extreme ends of that spectrum. So that sounds really interesting what you was working on there a few years back. It sounds really exciting. Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks for sharing. So how can training professionals create a better learning experience, particularly when it comes to technology? That's obviously especially relevant this year when we're relying so much on technology at work, but also in learning. So I think it's an interesting one. When when we look at the technology within learning, within HR, within talent, Often, sometimes I look at the technology and I go, who's designed this technology? Like, who, who has come up with it? Because it doesn't match our consumer-grade lives. Like, for example, whether we use Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whichever social media platform we're using right now in our daily lives, no one's really ever taught you how to use that platform. You've managed to pick it up and you've managed to make heads of tails and understand how it works and start to use it really successfully. So... In our consumer-grade lives, our technology expectations and experiences are very different to our professional ones. So what we have to do is we always have to kind of strip it back and, and ask ourselves, actually, how can we make our professional technology match that of our consumer lives? Only then will we start to be able to design really good tech. When you look at what tech is, you know, when you look at, I don't know, whether it be learning experience platforms or LMSs or whatever comes next, there tends to be a large percentage of that product which is very similar to the product next to it. And often maybe one product is focused on communities while the other one is focused on personalized learning content. So actually it's, it's the very tiny things what make it stand out to anything else. But often I ask myself, actually, I wonder if someone ever created a platform and gone, and gone to the, u- the user, the learner or the, the business and said, if I was to ask you to build this platform, what would that look like? And sometimes I think when we look at technology and, and the experience which they give us, it's always built on somebody's assumption of what people want rather than asking them, actually, what would that look like? You know, if I was to ask you to create, 
I don't know, a learning community right now on a platform, what would that look like? Tell me, you tell me what that would look like and, and how that would work. And instead, we just kind of rush and we sprint at something without really taking into account our learner, our, our people. So when it comes to creating a better learning experience, I will always try to find the tech what matches our consumer-grade lives, where there's less of a learning curve to go through that. And I'll always kind of look at it and go, actually, do we need learning tech for this? Or is it tech what's already out there, what we can use? So, we, you know, is it tech what we can bend to, at our will to make work? Or is it something we can borrow from, I don't know, from what, what tech a product designer is using over there? So I'll always try and look at actually, rather than buying in lots and lots of new tech, is it tech what already exists? And how far can we stretch that first before we bring in any new tech? Because I think we make, there's a risk that we want this one-stop shop where everything happens and often that one-stop shop doesn't exist. It ends up being more of a jack of all trades. So sometimes it's about understanding actually this is working over here. How can we make that work with this rather than ripping it all out and putting in just one, one tech platform? So again, when it comes to a better learner experience, ask your people what it is they want. What it is that's going to help them? What's keeping them up at night? What's the thing what's driving their frustrations as soon as they come into work? And actually, let's look at how we can use tech as the enabler to do that and remove that friction rather than and making an assumption. So then assuming training managers has done kind of that due diligence and, and talked to their people and they are you know, on the market for a new learner technology, what other things should they be looking for to make sure that they're picking the right platform for their learners? Yeah, so I think ultimately our design flow is very, very simple. Human-centric, experience-focused, enabled by tech. So actually, if you've got, if you've managed to kind of understand what, what it is tech you want, actually that becomes your enabler. Now we need to reverse back and go, okay, what does that experience look like? And then we reverse engineer back and go, actually, what is it we're trying to fix? But what we really want to try and do is, is think, okay, will this fix my problem right now? But actually, will it continue to develop my business? Often we, we've we seen where people buy tech and they're buying tech for the problem they're facing right now, not any perceived problems what's later on down the line. So anything what can give you more data-informed decisions, that's always a big win. Anything you can Power BI can work with to give you more data-led information is a win. Anything what kind of goes, actually, we don't need to be the gatekeepers of all this knowledge we just need to create something where they can be peer-to-peer -peer learning, where people can have conversations. Like, really strip it back and, and ask yourself, what is it, again, it's going back to first principles, really. What is it we want our people to do now and tomorrow? So, you know, GP Strategies is a great example of this. We're not in, in kind of partnership with any tech. We're agnostic. So what that means is we go in and we understand your problem before we ever suggest any tech. And that's that's... That ultimately is where I always challenge, and and to some extent, with me being a consultant and a director of experience and design, that is my job. I need to challenge them and say, actually, have you got data and have you got insight to say that you need this platform or you, this is a real problem, or actually is this based on an assumption and, and a bit of a gut feeling? So it's only once we know that problem, I think, it's being able to kind of go, okay, you want this, let's have a look at what tech is out there, what fixes this problem. But actually, you know, all of a sudden, everyone's working from home because of COVID. 
a lot of technologies are falling over because of this. So it's kind of a bit of speculative design, I guess, is where I'm going with this. And trying to think about the possibles and the probables of what might happen in a year or two years' time. We're seeing we're seeing more and more now around kind of how tech, some tech works really well with each other and some doesn't. For example, I can put a picture out on my Instagram and I can have that sent out to Twitter. I can have that uploaded to Facebook and it's all through one interaction. And what we've seen with technology is you buy a technology, but then it puts a bit of a ring fence around you. You can't work with other technology providers or you can't, you can only work within this constrained environment. So actually, I think the clients should really be asking questions like that. Actually, what are the limitations of this technology? That tends to be the first question I ask. Okay, you've told me everything about what's good about it, but actually, what's its limitations? And it, it'll be interesting to see what these technology providers say to that. If they tell you, actually, this is a limitation, this is a limitation, I would be more inclined to go with them because they're having an open, honest conversation with me rather than someone saying, actually, our tech has no limitations whatsoever. It's it's a unicorn of, of learning tech, which we know doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to consider right now, and that, that openness is just so important for sure. We mentioned earlier the idea of design as a mindset. How can thinking like a designer help training managers improve their solutions and approach? And how can they actually develop this kind of design mindset? So I kind of always revert a question like this back to my to my career. Like, if you always do the same thing, you'll always get the same result. That tends to be how I look at, at my career. So probably around about four or five years ago, I started to look at other industries and look at how they addressed different problems. So that could be how product designers look at creating a product. Sometimes that, that product will be completely irrelevant to learning. Or how customer experience create their experience and their journeys. Like look at all these other industries. Retail, you know, right now retail's probably taking a bit of a hit. But actually look at how some of these other companies such as over here we have a brand called Brewdog. And Brewdog it's it's ale, it's it's alcoholic drink. But actually throughout the whole COVID situation they, they changed their direction a few times. They give all their workers to allow them to go and work for sub supermarkets. Then they went from creating um alcoholic drink to creating hand sanitizer. And they was pivoting a lot throughout this whole COVID situation. So I think having that innovative mind and looking at how other people are kind of adapting and changing. Theme park designers, like if you want to see how people or how how people work when they're excited, look at theme park designers. You know, they design not only for the, the, the child or the, the grown-up child in us, but actually they also design for adults. They also design for people who, who may be in a wheelchair. There's lots and lots of thought and understanding around how they design things like that. Obviously, you've got other things such as behavioral science and looking at things such as nudge theory and, and kind of looking at our bias and, and things such as labor illusion and, and all different things, IKEA effect, all these things what people's took into account and understanding when they're doing their design, it just ultimately helps us become better designers and it stops us looking at everything being a learning problem and more being a work problem. Mm. All right. Well, Danny, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Before we wrap up, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? 
when I was younger, my, my, my grandparents used to call me the mad scientist. And I think that was often because I was always asking why. Why is it like that? Why is it this? Why is it that? And then I'd always go away and look at two different bits of things and go, ooh, I wonder if I could remix these and put these two things together and, and kind of see how that pans out. And I think we, we don't see that a lot in, in learning at the moment. And I think it's about kind of tapping back into that child and that, that crazy professor, if you like, that mad scientist, and start asking them questions again. Why? And well, what happens if I connect these two things together? Let's see what happens there. Don't be worried or scared to the point where it stops you from experimenting. So, yeah, I think that's probably my, my last thoughts on that, really. It'd be great if we could all kind of go back to that childhood curiosity that I think a lot of us tend to lose as we grow up. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And, it, and it's such a shame, right? It's such a shame because the one thing what makes us unique is that curiosity. And over time, we lose that. So it'd be nice result to find that again. All right. Well, on that note, thanks again, Danny, for joining us on the business of learning. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll be sharing more resources on design thinking and learning technology and development in our show notes at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app to help other learning leaders find us. Thanks for listening. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at trainingindustry.com or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.